Well, good morning, church. If I've never had the pleasure of meeting you before, my name's TJ. I'm the student pastor here. Um, so I'm thrilled to be with you this morning and for us to be able to unpack this. Um, but to get started, I'm curious this morning, this will help me understand a little bit about the dynamic of this room, okay? So what I want you to do is I want you to raise your hand, raise your hand if you are the oldest of your siblings. You're the oldest of the siblings. Okay, so here's the bossy people, <laughs> okay? Yeah, I get it. Um, all right, now, raise your hand if you're the youngest. Yeah, that's me, okay? Yeah, those are my people. Uh, if you're the middle child, just keep doing what you're doing, okay? Um, you're used to that. Um, if you're the only child, no one really cares. Um, okay, but I, I share that because, okay, so a little bit about me. I'm the youngest of three. I have two older sisters, so that means a couple things. One, um, yes, that means I'm spoiled by my mom. Um, still as a 35-year-old man, still call my mom like months before my birthday. Hey, mom, I want this for my birthday. Okay, sweetie. Um, if you want to see the affection of my mom towards me, just go look on my Facebook posts. You'll see my mom's comments everywhere. Um, but the, also one other thing that means is my two older sisters are six and eight years older than me. So those years of middle school, high school, my sisters were not in the house. One was at Purdue. Um, and the other one was married and out. So that means that when it comes to fashion, okay, fashion, middle school, high school boy, my influence is my dad. That doesn't go well for a high school, middle school boy. If you're a high school, middle school boy, do not ever take the fashion, fashion advice of your father. Um, I looked like a 40-year-old man in middle school and high school. Um, okay, I share that all because of this. As I look back on my childhood, okay, um, as I look back on my childhood and reflect um, at times of how that has impacted me today, I think a lot of times we can miss, and we, as an adult, especially as adults, we forget those years, um, and they tell us a lot about ourselves. Um, and a couple things came to mind of how my childhood impacted me. I had a very, very high desire to fit in, belong, and be a part of something. Um, I had this, this desire, I, had this, I felt like I needed to fit in by performing well, that I had to be better than others to prove my value to those around me. I also felt like I belonged when I was good enough. Um, very specifically, I noted my um, lack of fashion. Um, in the world of Zoom, I would have been awesome. I was wearing sweatpants way too long. Um, but Zoom, man, I would have knocked that out. Uh, but I remember having to try to fit in to be good enough by my fashion by, within whether it was my knockoff Doc Martens, okay? For those of you, you're like, oh, I remember those. Some of you are like, I have no idea what that is. That's fine. Google it. Um, my knockoff Doc Martens, my off-brand cargo khaki pants. Oh, my gosh. My childhood was horrible. Um, and my knockoff button-up t-shirt or button-up shirt. All of that was so that I could feel like I was good enough, and these two mindsets, better than and good enough, is what we're going to unpack today. And these, con these kind of mindsets and values tell us so much about our lives beyond childhood. Think about how you react to situations. You get called out. You get called out maybe in front of other individuals, and you then in that moment don't feel good enough. And what sometimes do we do? We in turn call out someone else so that we can feel better about ourselves. What about when we respond to emotions? When insecurity comes and we feel insecure about ourselves, we don't feel good enough, we then begin looking at other individuals and those around us in this better than lens so that we can feel better about ourselves. Even impacts the way we see our relationship with God. 
We don't feel good enough. So at different times we go, oh man, I don't feel good enough. I have to be distant. And we begin to step back in our relationship with God. We feel like God's distant, doesn't want anything to do with us because we're not good enough. Or on the flip side, you think we feel at different times that we're better than God and we see no need for the relationship in that moment. Or maybe for some of us in the room, that's where we're at. We are like, life's good. I see no need. My life's better than the Christians that use that as a crutch and I don't need it. How we raise our family. We feel at different times, we see that maybe our kid, our spouse, our family is being treated not in a way that that it shows the value and that they are good enough, or through at least our lens, by a coach, by a teacher, by a boss. And then we look for ways to talk about how we feel better than the individual. See, as much as we would like to think that this concept of better than or good enough dies in childhood, it's so prevalent throughout our lives now, and it has been all throughout history. And this is the tension that we have seen over the last couple weeks in Romans chapter 9 through 11 with Israel and the Gentiles. And we've walked through this, and we've seen Paul pleading with his non-believing Jewish brothers of saying, hey, there's something different. And this is today, I'm excited to unpack Romans 11 so we can see this resolution to the previous two chapters. Because it's coming out, remember, it's getting sandwiched between this really feel good in Romans 8, nothing can separate you. And then Romans 12, when it's like, oh, hey, conform, don't, don't conform to the patterns of this world, but renew your mind. We can skip over that. But there's so much, this is so important. So with your Bibles, let's open it up. We're going to read this in a couple sections. And the first one's going to be Romans 11. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. So let's read it together. You can see it on the screen. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I am alone left. I am I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed to the knee of Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer by the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. All right, so let's unpack this for a second. We need to understand, you see right there in the very beginning, he says, I ask then. It's kind of like a therefore, okay? So this, this, he's addressing specifically two questions that he raises a couple verses before. And this is what it says. And he, he says it in um, chapter 10, verse 18. He says, have they, Israel, God's people, not heard? Not heard of the gospel. Not heard of this, that all this, Jesus coming and what the disciples were teaching and preaching. He says, indeed they have. And then he goes on and he cites back in Psalms to David. Then in verse 19, he asks another question to them, Paul does. He says, did they not understand? And then he says again, and then he cites more Old Testament to them. But look at verse 21. Look at verse 21. This sets the tone for chapter 11. He says, but of Israel, he says, all day long, 
I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That is referencing back to Isaiah 65 too. This is not Paul. This is God saying this to his people. So since Israel, Paul's sitting here and he's using these Old Testament passages and he's so, that's his audience. They go and they get that. So since Israel has heard and they have chosen not to understand, this is when in 11 we see he asks this first question. Has God rejected his people? Has he moved on? Verse 2, he flat out answers it. He was like, no, he has not rejected his people. He has not moved on. Now, Paul gives his Jewish audience more understanding of this. He goes back and he references Elijah, feeling like God had moved on. And then he shows them how God assured him, Elijah, saying, no, I haven't moved on. I still have 7,000 individuals that are still following me, are listening to me. You're not alone. My mission is going to continue on even though you feel that Israel is just all against me. I have still chosen. I have kept for myself. We see there in verse 4. Okay, so if God hasn't moved on and he still has this group of people, then verse 7, look at verse 7. This is the question that Israel asks. What then? What then? Is it final? If God hasn't left them, what then? I mean, they're kind of like, this is like, this is kind of, these questions are kind of like DTR kind of conversations, define the relationship kind of things. I had a roommate in college that I feel like had a DTR with his girlfriend like twice a day. But this is, an, this is what Israel's doing. He's going, okay, then what then? If you haven't rejected us, then what's going on? It says Israel failed. Israel failed. What they were doing is that they were seeking this right standing with God. And he says, he's like, they have failed. Remember that there were, all, there were also the Jewish Christians that have accepted it. That's that remnant that he's talking about. He's like, no, 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 no. There are still others that have chosen and have accepted this and are still going. But Israel, those that are not believing in me, have not accepted Jesus in this. What does it say? It says they are hardened. Now, another way to think of that is calloused. You get the calluses on your hands and it's just kind of rough. Like, that's what he's talking about. That's another way to be able to look at this. So, and all throughout those first 10 verses... Paul's talking to his Israelite brothers, and he's talking to them. He's like, hey, I, he's pulling Old Testament, all of which they would understand. So his audience gets him. So let's continue on in verse 11. Verse 11 through 15, he says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Okay, so there's something to see here. He asked another question. He was like, so I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? That first couple of questions, that first question that he asked in verse 1, he's asking, saying, okay, is it everyone? Paul goes, no, it's not everyone. And then he goes, okay, is this final is the question he's asking here in verse 11. Like, is this it? Is this done? Does God now have a new people? Like, is this like final judgment done? And here we see, it's really interesting. We see a pattern here that Paul uses 
to help the Israelites and the Gentiles see how they're connected. Because all throughout history, they've been seen as opposition. And he uses this pattern. It's incredible, friends, of how he shows they are connected. And it is, this is the pattern. It's, he shows them. He says, this is how Israel rejected. This is how the Gentiles were blessed. And then he tells them, then he says, this is Israel's reaction. This is the result for them. Here's some examples of that. He says, their trespass. Israel's trespass. For the Gentiles, then salvation has come to the Gentiles all, and then Israel make Israel jealous. See the pattern? Showing how they're connected, he does it again. Their trespass, Israel's trespass and failure, what is the, bless, the Gentiles' blessing? Riches for the world, for the Gentiles, but then he switches it up. He doesn't show like the other one was to make him jealous. Then he shows them the great stuff. He says, for full inclusion. Verse 13, Paul shifts to the Gentiles specifically. He shifts to them to help them see that Israel is not and has never been out of God's mind. He's never been out of God's heart. They've never been out of God's heart. They've never been out of the family. And with the same pattern, he shows the Gentiles how the Israelites are still a part of God's family. And an even a bigger and better result for Israel says their rejection, Israel's rejection, brought reconciliation of the world. Then he says, points back to them again, their acceptance, life from the dead. This is so much bigger. He's trying to paint to the Israelites an inheritance. It's so much bigger. So now, you're probably sitting there like me, like reading this. I was like, so who is it? Is it Paul? Is it the Gentiles? Yep. Is it the Jews? Yep. So it's everybody? Yep. How? Like, pick one, man, okay? That's what he's asking here. Verse 16, he shows a little bit of a picture. Let's read it. Verse 16, he says, If the dough offered us first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember... It is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? He uses this go, kind of this, think of it this way type method with this olive tree and the branches. Now, to help understand going who's who, okay? The Israelites here, the non-responding to the gospel Israelites are the original branches. The Gentiles, anyone not native Israel is this wild, wild shoot, okay? Now, if you're like me, I, am, I have no green thumb whatsoever. Uh, plants in our house are either gonna die of one of two ways, by my wife and I or our dogs. Nothing survives. So 
I went and I was understanding this whole grafting process, and, and it is incredible. It is this very detailed process where taking one piece of a tree, cutting off a branch of another that is, has a root system in that, then what they do is you cut the opening, you like kind of splice the end of it, opening it up to show and expose the core to both of those pieces. Then you get them, you attach the cores together, you get... Um, kind of some fabric, and you wrap it around, and then you protect it. It's incredible to watch. And Paul uses this olive tree because it's a very common tree throughout the Mediterranean. Think like peaches to Georgia, okay? That they go, okay, yeah, we see that like every corner, okay? But there's an impact here to the the Israelites and the Gentiles. To Israel, they fit into this better-than mindset. Because what that grafting process does is what it does is it changes the genealogy makeup of the tree. Now, if you know anything about Israel or if you don't, genealogy and heritage, that's a big deal. So Paul's just told them, hey, it's like you getting that and then now you mix that and then now you're family. Now, yeah, now you're all connected forever. Israel's not happy with that. That is a threat to them and everything they're about. And then for the Gentiles, they're definitely feeling not good enough because when you graft a tree like that, What happens is the original fruit from the original tree is way bigger, way more nourishing than the one from the the part that's grafted in. So it's this inferior. They're already feeling going great. Now Now we're not good enough. See, I think back to elementary school. Uh, in elementary school, we did these races in gym class. Um, we would just do like running. That's when like elementary school, you think running's fun. And you're like, hey, let's do that. And great. You get like wise enough and you go, that's not fun. Um, but in gym classes, we would do these races and I would win a lot of them. Now, I don't share that at all because I'm great because now I would get smoked, okay? Uh, but we would run in these things. But I remember in fifth and sixth grade, what would happen is when we would win, our, our, our gym teacher, Mr. Marchian, would take our name and he would put it up on the wall of the gym. It was like this wall of awesome. Um, and we would go in there. But in fifth or sixth grade, the kids moved into the district. Some new kids, I remember some of their names. I remember what they looked like. Um, but they, st- they came into the district and they started beating me. It's because of them. It was not that I got slower. Okay? They were just way faster. But they come in and they start beating me. And again, immediately I start feeling I'm not good enough. And I remember friends. I remember the names of the individuals. I remember what they look like of the individuals then that I started looking at that I was better than. Even as an elementary kid, feeling like I wasn't good enough from getting beat by a race, I started seeing other people as me being better than. See, we have this tension of good enough and better than. When something external makes us feel not good enough, we then look, or sorry, when something external makes us internally feel that, we then look at others and other things around us as not good enough, or sometimes maybe even the opposite. We feel like we're better than something external. Wow, I'm great. Everybody else is horrible. Like, I'm better. They're not good enough. Both of these things continually happen within us. And this is what the Gentiles were experiencing. They had this arrogance towards the Jews, towards the unbelieving Jews. They were thinking, going, wait, now we're God's people. And Paul here issues a warning to them in verses 11 through 20, or 17 through 24. He's telling them, he's like, hey, 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 don't forget who you were and where you came from. You were a wild shoot on the ground and by the tree, by the kindness of the tree, brought you in. You did nothing. He's telling the Gentiles, this was nothing of your doing. At least when I was sitting there reflecting, at least the Jews, even the unbelieving Jews could go, 
I've at least obeyed the law. So like I have like birthright to be able to be a part of the tree. And so Paul's telling the Gentiles, don't be proud. Verses 20 through 22, he even gives them some very practical advice of how to live and how to operate different than this tension of good enough or better than other people. He says, stand fast through faith. Do not become proud, but fear. Note the kindness and the severity of God towards those who have fallen. And he also issues them a warning of arrogance and complacency. He says, provided you continue, provided you keep taking steps and doing this, Again, and he gives them this warning of complacency. And he then tells them again, he's like, you will be cut off. It's a warning of him saying, oh, look at me. I can be complacent. I can be here. And Paul goes, nah, you can be cut off just as much. If, he's, if he will do that to the natural branches, what more do you think he would do to you that were grafted in? See, God has this perfect balance, perfect balance between kindness and severity, Don't miss that he has this perfect balance between kindness and severity. Because remember Romans 10 verse 21 where it said that how how God was so upset with his people. He sees there in verse 23, we see that he says again, he extends an invitation to them. He says, even if they come back, even though the unbelieving and they choose to get away from their unbelief and believe they will be grafted in and even tells them it will be a bigger deal. It'll be this huge homecoming. God cares deeply for those that are apart from him. So how can God bring resolution to the Israelites and to the Gentiles and to us of this whole balance and battle between good enough or better than? Look back at verse 24. Look back at verse 24. This is incredible. For if you were cut off from what, the tr- from what is by nature a wild uh, olive tree and grafted in, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? It's three words right there, and it was caught right between commas. Did you catch it? It says, contrary to nature. Paul's audience here would be people that understand olive trees, this whole grafting process, and he's telling them contrary to nature, because as he's talking, they're going, you can't do that. There's no way you can do that. Paul, that's not how that works. You can't take that tree and that tree and go, and then it'd be fine and produce great fruit and everything live in harmony. He's like, you can't do that. Paul goes, yeah, I get it. And what does he say? He says, contrary to nature. Friends, for us, when we live in that battle and that balance and tension between I'm not good enough and then we get over to the other side of, oh, I'm better than, how do we feel and experience that reconcile? It's contrary to nature. It's called grace. Jesus makes you enough. The time when you feel inferior, Jesus makes you enough. And at the same time, Jesus makes others enough. Our danger is the same for the Gentiles through verse 17 through 24. You and I, we were wild shoots grafted into a tree that we did nothing to deserve to be a part of. Yet through God's kindness and love for us, he brought us in. We cannot be complacent and we cannot be arrogant. See, I wish so badly that I I can go back to that um, elementary school TJ and it would have have grasped this, truly grasped this in an internal level and how it would have impacted the ways that I saw people, not only as a fifth and sixth grader, but all throughout my life. How easy it is for us to jump into that. 
So how can you and I, how can we experience practically this resolution to our tension? Paul gives some really practical and beautiful prayer here at the end of 11 for, his, for his, the people that he loves deeply. Let's read 11, or, uh, chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has, been, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Practically, how can we experience resolution to that tension when we feel either better than or not good enough? The first one we can see is God's thoughts and ways become ours. God's thoughts and ways become ours. He says there, he's pointing back to Isaiah again. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Friends, for us, pursue and thinking, going, what are God's thoughts and ways here? When that voice says, you're not good enough, you're not that, what, does, what, what is the way that he thinks about you? What are the ways that he has shown you that? What his, God's thoughts and ways become ours. The second one, Seek his wisdom and plan. His wisdom and his plan. Again, he's pointing back to Isaiah chapter 40. All of that in there, and he was just like, who has been his counselor? And we want that to go, man, I don't know what to do in there. To literally go, God, I need your wisdom. One of the great things I love about when I need wisdom I had a friend, a mentor of mine, whenever I'd ask him, say, Jason, how can I pray for you? He'd say, TJ, just give me wisdom. I just want God's wisdom. That's all I want. That's all he ever said. And we would continually, I asked him, I said, Jason, why do you do that? He said, because the wisdom of God literally comes freely and without reproach, without finding fault. All we have to do is just ask and search him. Not like a genie going, hey, I need your wisdom. And don't get it and go, well, you're horrible. No, but from a heartfelt, deep desire saying, God, I want to search and I seek your wisdom and the plan for me. Your plan for me. And then the third one is we realize what we can't do. But what we can do is we can reflect through praise. Again, this one he shifts a little bit in Job. Paul's referencing back to Job, and he's in it. We can't repay him, but what can we do? We can reflect through praise. And friends, this is really hard. This is really, really difficult of having that perfect balance between security and we are enough by what Jesus, and then also not giving in to the easy temptation of how, and looking at others like we have forgotten about it. How easy it is, right? When we are brought into something, when we, when we uh, experience success, when we get finally brought into the group, when we feel that inclusion, right? We've been on the outside going, oh, I'm not good enough, or I won't be accepted, or I won't, be fi- I won't fit in. All these things, like, I'm, I'm so nervous, I'm so, and then it begins to change the way that we see other things all around us. But then when we get brought in, how quick it is for us to forget what it feels like. For those in our lives that don't have any relationship with God, so a lot of times it's easy for us to forget those apart from him, what they are feeling and what they are experiencing. How easy it is for us to point out how we're better than, to feel like we're not good enough, to think, I can't do that. It's impossible to view them differently. They don't deserve that. 
We sound like the, the people talking to Paul going, yeah, you can't do that. And what does he remind them? Friends, for us, it's the same truth. He says, contrary to nature. Because this is the one that is doing the contrary to nature work. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of, our, of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We can live and experience as contrary to nature balance between good enough and I'm better than all due to the individual, to the God that is contrary to nature and that's how he works. It's how he works. And we can because he shows there, he says, look at that. For from him, God is our source. And through him, God is our sustainer. And to him, God is our goal, are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The worship team's going to come and lead us now in a time of reflection. Um, and just a little bit of transparency. Like the message this week, like I was, I was totally not going to go in a different way. But as I was studying, it was just like this, holy cow, holy cow. I called Matt and I was like, hey, can you come to my office? I was like, hey, can we do this song? He was like, no. And I was like, are you joking? He was like, no, really, we can't. He's like, I've already given stuff to the team. I was just like, oh, that's cool. So I used scripture against them. It was a great word. I was like, hey, I unpacked it and he felt guilty and convicted. It was nice. Um, <laughs> this is what happens when you get the youth pastor on stage. Um, but the Graves in the Gardens gives us a, beauty, a beautiful reflection of this, of this contrary to nature thing, saying how can you bring graves into gardens? How can you make God mourning into dancing? How can you bring shame into glory? And while we sing this good news, again, we, all we can do is reflect through praise. Reflect for you. Maybe it's what thoughts towards people do you need to align with God's? What wisdom are you needing to rely on more of his versus yours? How do you need to re reflect him more in your relationships? His kindness to those that are currently apart from him. The friends and people around you that you're like, yeah, I see them. Not a part of the tree. Of saying, God, would you break my heart for those that are not grafted in, are not part of your tree, and would you use me in a way contrary to nature to help them experience this? Who are those friends? Who are those coworkers? Who are those neighbors? Who are those people? Name them. Name them, because it's really easy to get that tension. And maybe for some of us, it's experiencing being grafted into the, to this tree that brings the, most, the utmost nourishment and sustainability and life and hope for the first time. That you've been sitting there for years thinking, I'm not good enough. What would God want to do with me? Why would he want, he went to the utmost measure for you to experience that goodness and that nourishment and that different kind of life being a part of him. And maybe today is accepting that for the first time. Whatever your reflection is, whether it's in your seat, we invite you to come over to the tables. We'd love to talk to you. We'd love to pray with you. But friends, don't miss this. Don't miss the power of this because that contrary to nature, when I read that this week, it was literally like a wellspring of, of just excitement and power. I was like, whoa, this is incredible. And then it was also, God, would you change the way I see people? Very practically, 
Very practically, the gym that I go to, I struggle with that. I see individuals, I hear things that people say, and I go, it's really easy for me to go, ugh, I'm better than. But a few months ago, there's this conviction. It was like, no, TJ, see them in a different light. See them in a different light. So then I started to see the police officers and the firemen that are coming in and having this just deep, I could see their anguish and then be empathetic and just kind of go, man, I can't imagine what they go through. In a contrary to nature way, God can change the way we see those that are apart from him. And that's what he wants for us and he wants for them because he deeply loves them just as much as he loves us. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much, God, that you have this perfect balance between kindness and severity. God, we pray and we search and we seek and we desire so much of that in our lives. That is what we want. Even though at times that we don't exhibit, we don't show that, God, may you work in our hearts. May you bring us back to you. Maybe it's bringing our mind back to you. It's bringing our heart back to you. God, maybe for some of us, it is us using our influence more for you. God, whatever that is, we just want more and more of you because all we can do is we can, all we can do is reflect you. We can never repay you. And God, you just, that's all you want. And we thank you and we love you and in your name we pray. Amen.